So tonight we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 tonight in the book of Hebrews. And it's title, um, a study I'm titling Tour de Tabernacle as we go through this tabernacle. Got one laugh, which was good. And that made my night right there, so now I can go home. So Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we know that it's inspired, it's inerrant. Lord, we believe that it's inspired, Lord, in, in, in all that it says. Lord, the books and the concepts, Lord. Lord, but we also know, Lord, it's inspired down to the very words themselves, Lord. We know that each one was selected carefully, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to communicate a message, Lord. And we know, as we learned tonight, Lord, that message is all about you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, Lord, that we will leave with a greater understanding of who you are and, and what you've done for us, how you want to continue to walk with us, Lord, and work in our life, Lord, as you continue to grow us and transform us. So, Lord, as we look at this historical passage, Lord, of the tabernacle, pray, Lord, that you'd be, Lord, that you'd be glorified through it and that we would see you high and lifted up on your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. So besides being the World Series, it's also the election time. Everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows it's election time. You probably have seen this for the last, like, year or so on the news every single day. Now, if you're like me, it's easy for you to get caught up in thinking about the here and now. Really, the only the here and now. Like, okay, what's going to happen now or what's going to happen, you know, to our country regardless of, of who wins? Now, because of this, because I get focused on the here and now, it, I become discouraged. And really, I become distracted on God's future promises for the church and also the work that God wants us to do until he comes back. It's really easy to get distracted and just think about, you know, what, you know, what we need to do. Now, it, it's good to vote. Let me, you know, let me say that we should vote our conscience and, and vote biblically and, you know, make a difference. But at the end of the day, we're Christians. We're citizens of a, of, of, a heavenly, of a heavenly kingdom waiting for Jesus to come back to rescue us. Now, the writer tonight encourages us by showing us that God is still on the throne, that regardless of what happens, God is on the throne. And God is working out his prophetic plan to bring Jesus back to rule and reign on this earth. The kingdom of God, yes, is in our heart, but the kingdom of God is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. It's the climax of human history. It's the fulfillment and really the pinnacle of human history. And the Bible says that's going to happen when Jesus comes back at his second coming with his church to establish his kingdom, and we're going to rule and reign with Christ, and that's going to usher in eternity. Because right after the millennium, we go right into the new Jerusalem. Yeah, but God is working out his plan. He's working towards this kingdom age fulfilling his plan. Now, God's prophetic plan and purpose is driving the direction of human history as we see it. Just look at the past. Look at what God is doing presently through the prophecy updates. I mean, we see it. We see the trends as all these things are trending towards what God says in his word, and we know that God is going to be faithful in the future. If you want evidence that the flow of human history is moving towards this plan to focus on Christ and bring Jesus back, all you have to do is just quickly survey the Bible. Just take our eight sections of the Bible. 
And each one of those eight sections describes God's redemptive plan to bring Christ back. Think about the law, Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. In those books, we see God laying the foundation for Christ. We see that God chose a man, Abraham. And from him, God would work out a promise to bring his son. From Abraham would come Isaac and Jacob. From Jacob would come Judah. And God needed to protect Israel. And so he did that through Joseph in Egypt. And, but Israel needed to be in their land. They needed to be a separate people. So God brought them out of Egypt, brought them to Sinai to make them a nation. And there God gave them promises to keep them separate, to keep this chosen line pure. And then in the history books, Joshua through Esther, we see the preparation for Christ. God brought Israel into the land. While they're in the land, God gave one of the kings a promise, King David. And said, he said, David, from your line will come a king, and he will sit upon your throne and reign. David understood what God was talking about. He understood that from the line, his line would come the Messiah. And God continued to work out that plan and prepare the world for Christ. In the poetry books, we see them dispersed out through the different times of Israel's history. But in those books, we see the aspiration for Christ. We see man's longing and desire to worship God and have a relationship with God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We also see prophecies, specific prophecies. We looked at a bunch of them so far in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 110.4 predicted that Jesus would be our high priest through the order of Melchizedek. Right? Psalm 110 that first verse, it says how Jesus would rule and reign. He's going to come back and sit upon God's um, throne, upon the, king, uh, the throne of David. Then there's the prophecy books, Isaiah through Malachi. These show the expectation for Christ. As these prophets would come and they would preach to Israel, they would give Israel the message of God to return back to the law, to become a separate nation. But often as they were speaking, they would project forward in what they would say. And, they were, and it was all about the future. A lot of those things were fulfilled when Christ came at his first coming, but many of those things will be fulfilled when Christ comes at his second coming. It's the prophets. And then we have the gospels. Then we have the manifestation of Christ. And so all this building up to bring Christ into the world, and finally Christ is revealed. The one that the scripture has been talking about, the ones that the scripture has been predicting. Jesus said five times that the scriptures were all about him. He told those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, hey guys, you search the scriptures, you know, but it's, it's they that speak of me. He said, you read, you know, the, the law, the Psalms and the prophets, but it's they that speak of me. Over and over and over, he mentioned the fact that the scriptures were about him. And then we have the book of Acts. After Christ died on the cross for the sins, our, our sins rose again from the dead. Then the Lord filled his church with the Holy Spirit and sent them out. We have the propagation of Christ to bring this universal gospel to the world to deal with the universal problem of sin. As people got saved, they needed to learn about Jesus. They needed to learn more about what the gospel is and, and how to walk with Christ. And so we have the epistles. We have the explanation of Christ. And that's really what the epistles are. It's all about Jesus and how we can learn more about him, stay away from false teaching, not be deceived, and learn to grow in, in, in depth with him. And finally, Revelation is the, is the consummation of Christ. That God fulfills that promise that he gave to man in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 begin with man in a perfect garden with God in a beautiful relationship. Revelation 21 and 22 show man in a perfect garden city in a perfect relationship with God. 
chapters 3 through chapter 20 of Revelation, or uh, chapter 20 of Revelation, is all God's plan to restore man back. And that plan focuses all on Jesus. And so regardless of where you are in your Bible, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, whatever section you're in, it's all God working out his plan to bring Jesus in the world. We see God's providence, past, present, and future. But not only does the Bible point to Jesus in every section, but the Bible is very specific and pointing to Jesus in small little details. Think about Jesus and how he's revealed in pictures through events, through people and places. Think about events. Think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it. There, Abraham, you know, God told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there. Now, you know, Isaac's not a little boy at this time. He's somewhere around the age of 30. And so Isaac, in obedience, goes up there with his father, and he's walking up. He says, Father, I see the wood. I see the knife, but um, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide himself the sacrifice. And there, as Isaac goes up there, he submits to the father. He lays on the altar, and right before Abraham sacrifices his son, God said, oh, Abraham, 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 I see that you trust me. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And there, after God shows him that, God gives him a promise that from him God would continue to bless him and provide for him. That was all a picture of what God would do thousands of years later through Christ. As Jesus would go up to that same mountain, Mount Moriah, there on Calvary at around the age 30, and there die on the cross for the sins of the world. It was all a picture. God did provide himself the sacrifice. Think about the persons. Melchizedek, we talked a lot about him so far, right? Melchizedek, how he represented Jesus and how he was a king and a priest. He really was an illustration of how Jesus would be eternal, having no beginning and no ending. But now we come to places. We come to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a symbolic way to communicate to Israel about their coming Messiah. Concerning the tabernacle, the furniture, the priesthood, and the offerings, the writer says in verse 9, notice it, he says they were all symbolic of Jesus. The word symbolic here, I'm told, is where we get our English word parable, parabolic, which actually means to cast alongside. We all know the parables of Jesus. And what Jesus would do is he would use an earthly story to teach the people in order to give them a heavenly meaning. It was a story from their common life that they understood, and then he would, and, and he would use that to communicate a heavenly meaning. And that's what the writer of Hebrew does here. He says, hey, guys, I want you to look at the tabernacle, these Jews. I want you to walk through it with me. And he's doing all this because he's setting them up for what he's going to say at the end of chapter 9, that all those things were about Jesus. So with this as our understanding, I want to walk through the tabernacle and take a little history lesson. I don't want to look at it as a history museum, but I want to look at it as his story, as Christ's story, and how it was all pointing towards Jesus for you and I. This should be an encouragement for you and I. Because we know, man, if God had fulfilled, if God has fulfilled his promises through the minor details of prophecy, think about what God's going to do in the future through his great promises, many of them. So we can be encouraged regardless of where we are in our walk or regardless of where we are in, in human history. Tonight, as we tour a day tabernacle, we're going to learn two things. Number one, 
The tabernacle and the furniture pointed to Christ. And number two, the priesthood and sacrifices pointed to Christ. And so first of all, look at verses one through five. We see the tabernacle and the furniture pointed to Jesus. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So now the writer's continuing on where we left off last week. He's contrasting the first covenant or the law, the law of Moses, with the new covenant. Now the writer will speak more about this new covenant in verse 11, but for now he focuses on the ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. He's going to take those two thoughts and then he's going to break out his thoughts based on that. First we see the earthly sanctuary in verses 2 through 5. Now let's, let's walk through this tabernacle real fast, kind of give you a brief overview. The tabernacle consisted of three major areas. It consisted of the courtyard, it consisted of the holy place, and it consisted of the most holy place. The tabernacle, courtyard, first of all, was a big fenced-in area, or like a compound that faced east to west. Now this compound, when you came up on it, it was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. So it would fit out there in our parking lot. It would take up a lot of room out there. Now this fence that surrounded this area was seven and a half foot tall. And the, the material was made, out of, was, it was made out of white linen and those linen were supported by brass poles. And so as you came up on this thing, you wouldn't be able to look over it unless you were a giant, right? But it was, it was this area just surrounded this fenced in area. It had one gate. You can enter this gate only by one gate, which came in from the east side. Now, as you walked in to, um, to this area towards the tabernacle, you would come upon two important items. First, there was a large brass altar that was used for Israel's sacrifices. God established sacrifice under the law, command Israel that they, that's how they were to worship God and atone for their sin. This large brass altar was about three foot high and seven and a half foot, or in a seven and a half foot square. And so it was a big, big altar. On the corners of this altar, it had horns, and that's where the priests would hang their sacrifices and get ready to bring their offerings. Once you walk past this towards the tabernacle, you would come up on a bronze laver. That's where the priests would wash. God commanded them that they were to perform different services, and each one of them they were to wash. So it was this big bowl as they would go and, and they would wash these ceremonial washings. Beyond the labor was the actual tabernacle itself. And the tabernacle was really a big portable tent-like structure. It was 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, and 45 feet long. The tent was made up into two rooms. And so it, it, it was the holy place and the most holy place. The tent was actually made out of boards. And this is pretty cool. It was made out of boards that were two feet wide and 15 feet high. And these wood boards were overlaid with gold. I mean, so it was, it was beautiful. And they were fastened together. They were put together horizontally by sockets. And they also had rings that would help stabilize them and hang them together. So if they had winds or whatever, you know, they wouldn't just blow all over the place. Over this frame, there was four different types of material that made up the tent. So if you looked out from the outside in, the top, the most top layer was badger skin, maybe porpoise or, or something like that, scholars debate, but something like badger skin, it was waterproof. 
Under that was ram skin dyed red. Under that was goat's hair. And under that, the inner roof that a person could see from the inside of the tabernacle was beautiful linen, blue, scarlet, and purple. And the linen had an embroidery on it of cherubs or angels that are described as being around the throne of God. And so that's what the tabernacle looked like. Now, if you're to go inside this tabernacle, once again, you can only go in one way. And that was to the east side, through the door of the tabernacle. Now, when you walked in, you would go into the first of two rooms called the holy place. And that's what the writer talks about here in verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. The holy place was a room that was 15 by 15 by 30. The holy place consisted of um, a, a room with three pieces of furniture in it. And so when you walked into the room, if you looked right, you would see a table. And on top of this table were 12 loaves of bread. And each one of these loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. On the left side of the room was a menorah, which was made up of gold and had seven branches off it. And the priests were to continually burn these as a light, as a representation of, of God's presence. Now, as you walk towards the veil or the next room, you would encounter an altar of incense. And the priests were required to burn incense on this altar daily. Now, before you got into the other room, there was a veil there. There was a, a big curtain that separated this sanctuary, this holy place, from what they call the most holy place. And, and the writer is going to have some stuff to say about that. Look at verse 3. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the, tab and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So this next room, this Holy of Holies, was a room that was 15 foot square. Now as you notice, there's no lampstand mentioned in this room. There's no mention of any light in this room. And the reason that it is is because it didn't need the light. Because God's glory dwelt this room. God is revealed physically throughout the Bible. A physical manifestation of God is called the Shekinah glory. And often God's physically manifested himself in a pillar of cloud, a light, and fire. And this light dwelt this tabernacle and was a representation of God's presence among Israel. It lit up this room. So it's pretty amazing. And this is why it was called the Holies of Holies. The high priest, as we're going to see, can only go in there once a year. He couldn't just walk in, hey, God, how's it going? Kind of thing. You know, but, but through sacrifice and through different things, they were required to, uh, to enter in. Now, if you have a different translation than a New King James version of the Bible, this uh, censer here, this golden censer might read altar. And, and many have been confused because they read this and like, wait a second. So was the altar of incense in the Holy of Holies? But doesn't the book of Exodus say that the altar of incense was in the holy place bef before the veil, before you entered in the Holy of Holies? Well, there is no contradiction between Hebrews and Exodus. But, but it's just a, a wrong translation that some have, have interpreted. William McDonald explains. Let me, let me read you what he says. He says, verse 4 says that the golden censer 
was also in the most holy place. The Greek word translated censer can mean either the incense altar, mentioned in Exodus 30, verse 6, as being in the holy place, or the censer with which the high priest carried the incense. The best explanation is the latter. The writer regarded the censer as belonging to the most holy place because the high priest carried it in from the incense altar into the holiest, uh, the holiest place on the Day of Atonement. And so there's no contradiction there. It mentions the censer as belonging to the Holy of Holies because that incense belonged with the work of the high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies. And so, yes, the incense altar was in the sanctuary in the first room right before the veil, but the censer that he got off that belonged to the work that he would do in the most holy place. So that's why that, that word is linked there. So no contradiction there. Now, as you walked into this Holy of Holies, you would pass this veil that separated the two rooms. And as soon as you walked in, you would see a box called the Ark of the Covenant. This box was made of wood and it was overlaid with gold. The box was six foot long and uh, two and a half uh, feet high and two and a half feet wide. On the sides of this box, there were rings as the other pieces of furniture had, and this is how Israel was to carry this. They got into some trouble later on when they tried to put this Ark of the Covenant on an ark, on a cart, and uh, they, you know, they were struck dead as it kind of shifted around a little bit. God commanded that this was to be carried with poles through its rings. On top of this Ark, or, uh, ark of the Covenant was um, a mercy seat. It was a lid of solid gold, and on each side of the lid were two cherubim, or two angels. And their wings stretched out in front of them to touch each other, and their heads looked down, symbolizing the fact that they were, you know, in the presence of the glory of God. Now, as I said, no lampstand mentioned, only this ark, only this mercy seat. So this description is giving us a good history tour. But it's not just a natural history museum tour. You know, you might have been to a natural history museum where you go in and you see different things and you see different wax figures and things like that. The writer of Hebrews isn't doing that here. He's not trying to give us some dull, dry history lesson, but he's giving us a story of Jesus. It's his story because all these things pointed towards Jesus. So far, we've seen that the tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. When God told Moses, Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle on earth, he said, I want, you to make, I want you to make it just as I tell you. Because the reason is, we're told last week, that it was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle. And so as these readers were reading this, they can understand that God's true heavenly uh, tabernacle is where Jesus is right now. It's in heaven. Now, this heavenly tabernacle needs no furniture because Jesus, who represents these things, is there dwelling in this heavenly sanctuary. Think about it. He is the bread of life. There is no need for a table of bread. Jesus is the light of the world. There is no need for a menorah. Jesus is the mercy seat. There is no need for continual offering and sacrifice upon this Ark of the Covenant, upon this mercy seat. Now, the Greek word mercy seat is where we get our English word propitiation. And so, and so this represents what God did through Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, the high priest was to go in once a year into this Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on this mercy seat. 
and there he would atone or propitiate for the sins of the people. He would satisfy God's wrath for that year against sin. Well, the Bible calls Jesus our propitiation. So through his death, resurrection, and ascension, God's wrath against sin is fully and finally satisfied. It perfectly represents him as he is there in heaven. God is satisfied. The angels and cherubims are around Jesus, worshiping him daily, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What an encouragement for the Hebrews. Why go back to Judaism, to a history museum, to the, to, you know, to the temple, when they can press forward and focus on Jesus who fulfilled all these things? He is ruling and reigning in heaven. Well, how about you and I? Well, we can be encouraged. Rather than being stuck on looking back maybe at past failures or looking at and worrying about things in the here and now, we're to look forward to Christ in heaven. The Bible says he's going to come back for us, and we can know that he'll fulfill those promises. Second, in verses 6 to 10, we see that the priesthood and sacrifices pointed to Christ. The writer is now going to deal with that second thing that he mentioned in verse 1, the ordinances of divine service. He says in verse 6, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. So after this tabernacle was stood up in the book of Leviticus, we're told that God's glory dwelt this tabernacle, and God there established under the law that the Levites and the priests would continually minister there in the, the tabernacle, and later also in the temple. They had daily things that they needed to do. They always went into the first part, this holy place, to do these daily functions. Some of those things were they were to keep the incense burning on the altar. It was a daily thing. They couldn't let this incense go out. They couldn't say, hey, I'm going to take, take a week off for a while. You know, what would you do? You let the incense go out? Well, that's all right. We'll just light it up again. No, they had to continually let it burn and, and, and burn on the altar. Also, they had to fill the lamps. They had to keep this lamp burning. Day after day, it was a 24-hour shift, and they had cycles as they would go in and do it. Also, they would replace the loaves on the table. As they started to get stale, they would put fresh loaves on there. So bacon, bacon is a biblical thing, right, as they would bake these loaves and put them on there. I don't think they were gluten-free, though, so I'm sorry if you're, if you're if gluten-free. They, they were unleavened, though, right? And so, well, that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent there. But anyways, so, so they were fresh loaves as they were on this. Now, since the focus is on the work on the inside of the holy place, nothing is mentioned on the work daily that went on in the outer court in the courtyard. There was other things that went on in the outer court, but the writer is really only focused on the sanctuary, on the holy place, and on the most holy place. But, you know, the stuff that went on daily on the outside were the different sacrifices that the people would bring. They would offer them on um, this altar, and, they, they, you know, they would also perform the various washings and things like that. Now, as we think about Christ, we know that he fulfilled this role of a priest. As these guys were functioning daily in this holy place, in this sanctuary, we know that Christ is also functioning daily for us. We already talked about it the last couple weeks. We know that Jesus said that he was going to heaven to prepare a place for us. John 14, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus is there right now preparing our mansion, a heavenly home that he's going to come back and take us back to enjoy with him. 
Jesus is also, the Bible says, interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you and I right now. You say, Lord, I need a lot of prayer. The Lord is, he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. Jesus is working as our advocate, John says in 1 John. And so just as this priest was in this sanctuary ministering and working, even so Jesus even now is fulfilling his role in ministering on our behalf. Verse 7, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So once a year, God commanded Israel to make atonement for sins. It's called the Day of Atonement. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. Those who put their faith in God would have atonement for their sin. Now, the word atonement is not the same as we think of the New Testament atonement. When we think of atonement, we think of the total forgiveness of sins. But the word atonement used in the Old Testament is the word kofar, which meant a covering, which meant a covering. As we're going to see in chapter 10, the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrifice of these animals, can never fully take away sin. It can only cover their sin. They only covered Israel's sins and satisfied God's wrath until the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, can come and take away sins fully and finally. So God established that once a year, the high priest would do this on the Day of Atonement. He would offer various sacrifices, one for himself and also for the people, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, not just once, he would go into the Holy of Holies a couple times. Oftentimes, when, when you read that the, that the high priest went in once, we think that he only went into the high, Holy of Holies one time, but he actually went in a couple times that day, but he can only go in one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. So first he would sacrifice for himself, and then he would go in and make atonement for the people. He would take the blood from this sacrifice animal, go in past the veil, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on that gold mercy seat, and there make propitiation or atonement, the covering for the sins of the people. Now the writer says that this was all symbolic. It was all teaching Israel something very important. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, washings, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. And so the writer says, besides making atonement, this tabernacle, these services were all a parable. They were to teach Israel of their need for a once-for-all sacrifice to Jesus Christ. They could see that in the fact that the veil was still up. This veil separated God's presence from man. And he said, as long as that veil stood there, Israel could know that their sins were still there, that they still had to sacrifice continually for their sins. Well, as we're going to see, Jesus fulfilled this type. He was our final sacrifice. And we all know from the Gospels, when Jesus died on the cross and said it is finished, what happened to that veil? The Bible says it was ripped from top to bottom, exposing the holiest of holies. Think about what the priest thought. Like, whoa. It, it exposed this holy of holies, showing that the separation, the veil between God and man was no longer there. That now through Jesus, Mankind can go straight into the presence of God. Not just once a year through a priest, through the various sacrifices and washings, 
But Jesus said, when you pray, you pray, our Father who is in heaven. Think about how that would blow the mind of the Jews, that we can go straight to God and call him Father. The word is Abba, which is more intimate. It means Daddy. And so this is what Jesus has done for us. He has fulfilled this. He has paid that ultimate sacrifice that now we can approach God directly through his once and for all shed blood on the cross. It goes deeper than that. Not only do we have this access to God directly, but the Bible says that the work of Jesus goes deeper than our flesh. It affects our heart. It affects our soul. It actually affects the conscience of the person who believes in Jesus. You see, the conscience of the Old Testament believer was always reminded of the fact that they had sin. The fact that they offered their sin, they knew that their sin wasn't fully, finally covered. It only reminded them that next year they had to do the same thing. Next year they had to do the same thing. But yet for the believer who believes in Jesus, your conscience can be clean, knowing that your sins are forgiven. Not just covered, forgiven. Put as far as the east is from the west. It's pretty great. You just get on a plane and fly west, you keep going, around a circle, right? Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been cleansed. It's not just a outward cleansing. It's a cleansing of the heart, cleansing of the mind, cleansing of the soul. All these things were parables until the time of Reformation, that time in which Jesus would come and set things right, set things straight. So in closing, rather than worrying about the past or getting caught, caught up worrying about the present or even the future, let's keep our eyes on Jesus because in him is all of God's promises fulfilled. Everything in the past was pointing to Jesus. Everything in the present is pointing to Jesus. Everything in the future is pointing to Jesus. One day Jesus will come back and fulfill these promises and you and I are gonna be with him.